Hello, I'm Louise Makshari and welcome to Real Talk with Real Mums, a podcast that looks at the issues of everyday pregnancy with healthcare professionals and the real women who have gone through the pregnancy journey. Our first episode is all about diet and nutrition. Later, we'll be joined by Sinead Curran, the dietitian manager in the National Maternity Hospital, Hollis Street. Our real mum this week is Susie Lewis, the proud mum of one beautiful son, Harry, and currently 38 weeks pregnant with her second baby. How are you feeling? Pregnant. Yes. And heavy. Yes. Yes. And uh, just big. I'm at the stage now, as I said, I'm ready to give this baby the eviction notice. Yeah. Um, it's so funny isn't it something just clicks at some point and then all of a sudden you're like I don't want to do this anymore yeah you I, like, I, I don't love being pregnant right. and I suppose it's a hard thing to kind of disclose yeah um, I find the pregnancy quite difficult but I love the babies right so it's worth it so how was your last pregnancy and how has this pregnancy been um, quite similar actually um, up into the start so at the start um, I get quite quite bad morning sickness um, so on my first son, it lasted till about 18 weeks. It's about the same on this one. Um, and then you reached the kind of second trimester, the honeymoon period. And, mm. you know, that was great in the last one because I just started eating all around me and it was brilliant. Whereas with this one, I only had a few weeks of the, the honeymoon period and then I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes. And then I said, OK, well, this has gone from bad to worse now because, you know, that that guilt you have when you're not pregnant at having cake and all of that that you look forward to not having when you are pregnant that has all just been taken away from me now and I feel like I'm back on my pre-wedding diet even (laughs) though I'm pregnant so um in that way it has been very different but thankfully all the babies are very they're my first son was very very healthy he's very big born um but I'm really tall and my husband's really stocky Mm. um so I just think genetically we just make big ones but your first son was born a little bit early right and he was still really big yeah he was born at 37 weeks and two days and he was nine pound three he was the 99th percentile yeah Yeah. the whole way along mine was was just under nine and I thought that was big that's that is a a very healthy bouncing baby yeah yeah and he's great but you know what he's still really tall and he's still stocky and he's he's just a mix of the two of us I suppose yeah so with this gestational diabetes um diagnosis you have to be really careful about what you eat right yeah what does yeah. that mean really day to day it's like being on slim and world or weight watchers but friday's never coming right <laughs> you know you have to um it's i'm no stranger to diets you know i've always been very health conscious weight conscious you know um but in my mind i found this actually very very hard to accept because I consider myself to be a really healthy fit person and only people who are unhealthy get diabetes and um, so in my mindset I didn't have it on the first one and he was enormous this one was measuring average so why would I have it now mm. um, and then you're given this diet and I'm looking at it and it's just it, it, it is just healthy eating it's you know you eat all your high fiber carbs and you know your healthy snacks but when you wake up at three o'clock in the morning starving, the last thing you want to be doing is peeling a carrot and having some hummus, you know, yeah. like just give me a t- sliced toast. Yeah, give me, yeah, yeah. You know, cereal is always was always my go to thing. Mm. And like I even consider like my cereals, they were healthy ish. You know, I'd have yeah. bran flakes mixed with muesli. Well, they're all gone. Yeah. You know, so you have to be very careful about that and the timing of them, mm. of your meals and of your snacks. And I found that difficult because sure, every time I went into the kitchen, I'd have something to eat. Right. Because I could. Yeah. So 
you know, I'd have grapes, I'd have blueberries, I'd have loads of fruit and that was all gone. So you just have to put a lot of thought kind of into it. So what's your, what's it, what's like, what's a day? Let's say today. So you wake up in the morning um, and that's the other thing with having a one year old, you know, your day could start at half six or it yeah. could start at half eight. Half so. six is good for me, by the way. Oh, the is moment. it? Yeah. yeah. Half yeah. six where you feel like we're winning. Anything yeah. after, after the hour of five, we're happy. Well, my little fella in fairness to him is great. He does, he sleeps all night. But like that, you could be starting yeah. early or later. Um, so in the morning time, I try and have, you, you, you have to have less, even less carbs in the morning for some reason because it affects your sugars differently. So I usually have like two eggs and two slices of whole meal toast or I have um, the jumbo porridge oats, but you have to make them with water and you're not allowed to put fruit or anything in them. So I put in a bit of cinnamon in there and sometimes I sneak some sweetener in, but I don't tell that to the dietitian. <laughs> um, <laughs> so sometimes I'll have that. And then at about two hours later, then I'll have a snack, but I have to do insulin as well. So I have to, you have to, you have to take that and then eat straight away. So you have to have your food in front of you because if you forget to eat, it can make you go into a hypo. So I'm trying to feed my one-year-old and then prepare my own look, my own breakfast, make sure I do the injections, make sure he doesn't really see me doing the injections because I don't want him to go at so all So you're doing stuff. insulin injections as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, and that's only, I, I'm not even doing them a week. Yeah. And that was really hard. Again, I, was, I got, actually got really upset when they told me I needed to take insulin because like, I kind of said to myself, I've only, you know, 10 days left of this pregnancy. Yeah. Why is this happening? Like, why... You know, I have to go out now and buy all this stuff and prick my finger and, you know, and I, I couldn't get, get past the fact that, you know, but I've been a really good student. Yeah. I've never failed anything in my life. Can I resit that glucose tolerance test? Because I'll study harder. Yeah. Do you know? Or like the driving test. I yeah. just figured, oh, I'd been really bad the night before and this is a mistake. Yeah, but there's no reason. No, yeah. no. But it doesn't, it, it didn't seem to matter how many times the diabetic midwife or the dietitian would say, you know, this isn't something you can control. It's hormonal. And diabetes is in my family. But at the same time, I just assumed it was because they were all unhealthy and I'm not. Yeah. Okay. Do you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Um, which sounds like a crazy way to be but that's obviously how my my mindset worked so when I had to start doing all the injecting and everything I just got really overwhelmed yeah well it's a lot of like we've only done half the day but I feel like it gives a good idea of like you know you really are having to pay attention to your schedule like uh, I really struggle with that like uh, and I because I it's because I have a two-year-old and I have a, a work a job that doesn't really go to a normal kind of nine to five schedule so I struggle to find to get the meals in I just I forget about them and then all of a sudden it's two o'clock and I haven't eaten my husband is giving me reading me the riot act um so it must be quite difficult to manage that tightly scheduled eating yeah I find it hard but I just have to well because I'm on maternity leave it's easier yeah um if I was at work now when I you know I was starting all the injecting um I'm not sure how it would go but I just have to make sure I have the kitchen well stocked yeah. you know as my husband calls them the weird snacks yeah. would you like any weird snacks um, you know so I make sure I have plenty of oat cakes plenty of nuts I carry nuts around in my handbag yeah they're kind of my go-to because you can kind of have as many nuts as you want um and like that just try to make sure if I am really really hungry that there's something there I can eat yeah you know but it's so, not the same as picking up a cereal bar or, yeah 
you know, as I said, having a slice of toast. Or well, I was going to say all these things that you're mentioning are obviously would be excellent snacks, whether you had gestational diabetes or not. I'm sure the dietitians in the hospital would be delighted with you. Did yeah. you eat a lot of those snacks in your first pregnancy? Um, in my first pregnancy, yeah. You know, I, I suppose I didn't really like I, I ate as, as I believe to be healthy, like plenty of fruit, not too much chocolate, but orange juice was my thing. And it still is like I wake up dreaming about orange juice and you can't have it. There's just no way. It's what you give people when their sugars are really, really low to yeah. make them go up really quick. Um, and the diabetic midwife is really funny because she says, oh, that'll pass. It hasn't. I still wake up dreaming about orange juice every day. I presume day. you're going to have some in your hospital bag. But you know what? The minute this baby comes out, I you won't, won't even want, want it. it. Yeah. I won't want it. So what I do now is, is I just buy the really big juicy oranges and I let myself have one of those as a snack every day. Um, and that's been working. And then you can have um, like sugar-free my wadi. Yeah. That, that kind of stuff. It's not the same. But that was my big craving with my first. And it still is with this one. So you mentioned earlier that you've also experienced sickness at the other end of your pregnancy. Um, tell me a little bit about that because I'm very, I've been so lucky. It's not something that I've experienced, but I know it's a real struggle for so many people. Yeah. I think maternity leave should start when you pee on a stick, to be honest, <laughs> because I find those first kind of three, four months particularly difficult. And I was just back at work as well, having had my first. Um, so yeah I, I suppose then food wise again it's really difficult because you know you're you're trying to eat a healthy diet because you're growing another human but at the same time you know things that you'd be used to eating you can't even look at like the smell of chicken if there was a chicken in the oven in my house I couldn't be in the house right you know I and of course your sense of smell is heightened as well yeah so those kind of things dinners has always been you know when I start when when I start being pregnant and when I at the start of the pregnancy I just couldn't couldn't be in a room with dinners the, the look of mashed potato or a piece of chicken or a piece of meat so like that I would just eat kind of the beige food family mm. toast and sausage rolls funnily enough I could manage um, I'm not a crisp lover but I could manage things like snacks mm. um, so I just well they tend say to, I, salty food for nausea is yeah, yeah. But in the end, for both of them, I actually ended up on uh, medication towards the kind of 12-week mark. I always okay, tried so to you get. had serious sickness. Yeah, not as bad as other people. And I do have to, I, I do have to stress that because I know, I know people who have had really bad high premises, you know, and have puked for 40 weeks. So, yeah. yes, I did vomit a few times a day and I did feel awful. But it does pass. And I think the second time around, I dealt with it better because I knew it would pass. Mm. Whereas the first time around, I just felt like this is never ending, you know? And you, you see it on the movies and you think, ah, oh, sure, that only lasts for two weeks. Yeah. And then you're fine. And then you hear people like yourself and they tell you, oh, I've been fine. I'm just eating and everything I know, is grand. I know. And feel like, free to hate me. I want to gouge your eyes out right yes. now, you know? <laughs> so I feel so sick. Um, but then, you know, as I said, you know what's coming after it so it's just worth it yeah. you know to get your little baby and know that everything is working out okay and yeah. they're healthy and you're healthy so I suppose one aspect of it that I didn't expect to happen this time around was actually lost weight in the first trimester and um, before I gained it then with the second and third so I haven't gained as much this pregnancy this time around which I suppose looking towards the future is probably a good thing 
And what about um, exercise? Were you, did you have exercise as part of your routine anyway, like outside of your pregnancies? Yeah, so um, I'm a keen uh, GAA player. So I've always played with my local club um, and did so up until I got pregnant um, with my son. And then I had just actually started back um, after having Harry. I had really bad back pain and I started Pilates and I loved it actually I have to say I thought it was really great um, for my back and for your core so I started doing that and then the football team he came in October and the football team were kind of getting back to training just kind of indoor stuff aerobic exercises in the January so I said oh I'll go down to that so I started doing a bit of that as well so for twice a week I was exercising and then we got to the stage where the matches were starting and I was building myself up because it did take a while, you know. I think one day I decided I was going to do yoga and maybe it was only about seven weeks after the birth and I put a video on YouTube of postnatal yoga. It was a mistake. Yeah. It really was. <laughs> I, my body was not ready for it. Yeah. And I remember saying to my friends after, because you do feel there's like a pressure to kind of get back to the way you were. I suppose maybe it's we see it in, on the television and celebrities and things but no it was way way too soon so once I got to the 12 week stage then I was saying okay I feel ready um so I just did whatever I could and kind of come March April May I was back doing the training of football maybe not doing everything and um, just taking it as it comes and then of course my manager called me to the side and said you know oh I think you're ready now for we're going to give you 20 minutes of a match and I said no I'm not ready and he said, no, no, I think you're ready. I think you're ready. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm pregnant. <laughs> so um, that was the end of that. So yeah. I don't know if that's the end of my footballing career. But yeah, I've always been, um, I suppose, a person who I, you'd consider to be fit, consider to be active and healthy. It's yeah. always been a part of my life. And I still see it being a part of my life in the future. But and in I, your pregnancy now, are have you? Is there a kind of light exercise, or are, is it something that you're just kind of going with the flow about? So yeah, I'm going with the flow at the moment because what happened with the first one, um, I still remember to this day. I was seven weeks pregnant, and I went to get my pregnancy program in the gym, and my morning sickness started that day. Yeah, and I have not set foot back in that gym since. <laughs> Um, just because I just couldn't you know you're so lethargic you're so tired so what I did this time around um, was I was walking I was walking a lot with my yeah. son in the buggy um, and then I did some swimming Yeah. Um, and that kind of finished then up around Christmas time and I haven't been back swimming since I probably should have but I did really like the swimming and it took the weight off the bump and everything yeah. found it really nice I did pregnancy yoga with my first son um, and I enjoyed that too but I think I preferred the swimming this time around but at the moment I'm running around after a one-year-old and yeah. I figure that's enough exercise for anybody. Do you know what and I think you're dead <laughs> right and you mentioned it there like there is a lot of um, outside pressure well there's so much pressure on women in general about what their bodies need to look like and what their bodies should feel like and how their bodies should perform but certainly there is some pressure to snap back I think is the expression that people are using these days after you have a baby that like your body will just immediately return like an elastic band to the way that it was before but that's just not realistic is it no definitely not um I think there has to be a certain level of acceptance there and you know I was only discussing this with my friend the other day you go from being in your prime let's say for me I was your your typical mother in that I got married we went on honeymoon the next month I was pregnant so I looked the very best I ever did when I got pregnant 
And then all of a sudden you go from telling your body, don't, don't put on weight. You need to look this certain way to, oh, you're going to be the fattest you've ever been now. Mm. You know, and it's, it's even though it's not fat, it's pregnant. No, it's pregnant. Yeah. But psychologically, you're almost programmed to think like that. So you have to let a lot of that go. And then I think having been through the labor and the birth, um, you realize how amazing your body is. And, you know, in the first pregnancy, I was like, oh, you know, stretch marks and I care about this and I care about how this looks and I care about how that. This pregnancy, I'm so much more relaxed because I care more about what my body is able to do, you know, than what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And I don't mind having the stretch marks after. I kind of see them as my marks of achievement nearly, you know, and yeah I'm definitely much more relaxed about all of that side of things yeah. this time around yeah that's so great for me to hear because I, I like I I spend a lot of time thinking about the way that women feel about their bodies and I know for me in my in my own life kind of I I was sick for a while and that made me appreciate all of the things that my body did on a daily basis to keep me going and um, which I had taken for granted up to that point to kind of I was looking at me myself as kind of a, a clothes horse but like your body has a purpose way beyond putting clothes on it or, or what it looks like and you know that realization I think is amazing and I definitely it was compounded by my experience of having a baby because it's just incredible like you have that baby and all of a sudden all the things that were causing you problems before whether it's you know you might have be having pain in your hips or your pelvis or your gestational diabetes or you know all of a sudden they're gone and then you know within a few hours you're able to walk around and like be a normal person it's it's really incredible it is and it does teach you to respect your body in a whole new way and realize that it has a purpose um so I, I, lo- I love hearing you say that um do you think you're a little bit kinder to your body now in general as a result of that yeah I think I'm much more relaxed yeah um about it like that um and I suppose I'm at a stage in my life where you know I'm I'm not out every weekend and like trying to follow the best fashion trends or you know um getting the legs out every weekend or anything like that so my social life has been hindered by my children but I'm okay with that <laughs> um so yeah I'm at a stage where I'm just a lot more comfortable I think in my own skin um now I want to be healthy yeah. but my vision and my idea of what's healthy maybe has changed yeah yeah well, I think it sounds like you are pretty healthy at the moment if you're following that uh, gestational diabetes diet and you're yeah. running around <laughs> after your first. Uh, how are you feeling about having two in your house? Yeah, I'm a bit nervous. Yeah. Um, my son is quite clingy um, at the moment. So, yeah, like he, I often think if he could crawl back inside there, he would. <laughs> um, but we're just going to take it each day as it comes. My motto for everything is always, what do other people do? You know, there are other people out there who have loads of kids at home. Look at our parents. They didn't have any help. You know, our generation were, you know, a bit spoiled in that. We kind of expect, oh, I'll still send them to the creche and I'll have the minder and I'll do this and I'll do that. And, you know, I think I'll survive. (laughs) I mightn't remember it in a few years. (laughs) I might be a bit sleep deprived, but I'm looking forward to it. And I think, you know, giving Harry the gift of a sibling so close in age, that's invaluable. Yeah. You know? And like, if you'd have asked me after giving birth, would I have gone again so soon? I would have said, no way. This child is going to be an only child. Um, you know, the labor is horrendous, all of that. And then four months later, I was dying to be pregnant again. <laughs> so even though it was a bit of a surprise to get pregnant so soon with Harry, 
Um, I was just delighted. That's the mental you know? snapback. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe it's just trickery. Yeah. <laughs> Your brain just tricks you. Yeah. But yeah, I think I'm looking forward to that. And I can't wait to be a family of four. And, yeah. Well, you know. it's only around the corner. And I wish you the very, very best of luck with it. Thanks so much, Susie. Thank you. Now, we're delighted to be joined by Sinead Curran, the dietitian manager in the National Maternity Hospital, Hollis Street. So Sinead, what should we be eating and what shouldn't we be eating when we're pregnant? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and we often, you know, we, we do this class in Hollis Street anyway and many of the other uh, maternity hospitals will, which is um, directed at people who are newly pregnant, so first time parents. And uh, one of the things we always say to them is we're kind of closing the stable door after the horse is bolted for the first trimester because the nutrition that the baby gets from a mother in the first trimester really relates much more to how a mother was eating before she got pregnant than it does to what she's eating at the time. Now, that's a mixture of reassuring and worrying for parents sometimes. Um, so what we would love people to be aware of is that if they're planning to get pregnant, but that if you are planning to get pregnant, that you give yourself about three to six months before uh, you plan to be pregnant, which again is not it's not a straight line, um, to, to pay attention to what you're eating and that you would take a folic acid supplement for starters, 400 micrograms of folic acid every day. It's a low level of supplementation that helps to raise the amount of folic acid that's in your red blood cells and helps to make enough folic acid available for the development of the spine and the brain very early on in pregnancy. And the other thing that is important in advance of getting pregnant is that just to double check that your weight is in a healthy range. So if you have a few pounds to lose, it might be you know worth addressing that in advance of getting pregnant um with the big big uh little add-on to that that if you lose between five and ten percent of your body weight it improves your fertility so if you're not planning to get pregnant and you're losing weight you need to pay attention to your contraception on the other side of that we have a lot of women and i see these again through the fertility clinic women who maybe are underweight and when you're underweight your body often doesn't ovulate regularly so if you are uh, maintaining a weight that is lower than average, it's a good idea just to address that and maybe see if you could um, be at a healthier weight and that might help you to achieve a pregnancy. And it also will make it more likely that you're, uh, you have a wide range of nutrients in your body available for the, the development of the baby in the first trimester. So other than eating healthily and eating regularly and including a wide range of foods, the two things we'd like women to be aware of is to take the folic acid supplement, but also because we live so far north, um, despite the cracking summer that we've just recently had, really everybody needs to make sure that they're getting enough vitamin D and not many foods contain vitamin D. So almost everybody in Ireland should be taking a vitamin D supplement. Is there anything that can help improve nausea in that first trimester? There is and there isn't. Uh, there is in that um, uh, eating regularly is really important. It's very important as well that people do know that, you know, it's unlikely to be a problem for the baby um, because, again, as we said, that kind of nice built in protection whereby nutrition is available uh, from the mother's body uh, during the first trimester and until the placenta is working and kind of helping to deliver nutrition from the mother's bloodstream. Baby isn't dependent on what you're eating. It's mothers who are miserable, but babies are still can still be thriving. Um, so 
eating regularly is really important. A lot of women will, you know, say this, that they find that they're having to eat really often to keep the nausea under control and they worry about that. But all bets are off in the first trimester. Um, you know, it's it's one, if you can manage to take your folic acid, um, whatever you can stomach, if you can eat it in small amounts regularly throughout the day, that's fine. Um, really, we encourage you to focus on keeping enough fluids, you know, so drinking whatever you can manage to drink because fluids and glucose are the two things that, that babies need most in the first trimester. So glucose comes from the obvious things, the sugary things. And then after that, from any other starchy carbohydrates. And the simplest way to get that is often in uh, carbohydrate foods that are quite easy to digest, which is why you see that, you know, every film from the 1950s says Doris Day sitting in her negligee nibbling a couple of crackers before she gets out of bed in the morning to settle her tummy. She's a polite little vomit and off she goes about her day, which is not how it pans out for most, you know, for most women. So for the, the kind of milder end of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy and just feeling lousy, eating regularly and knowing that it will pass with time for the majority of women is really important. But staying on top of hydration is really important because what will get you admitted into any of the maternity centres is getting dehydrated. So you should be able to pee every two to four hours if you're finding that you're you're not peeing terribly much or you're not able to keep down fluids you should be presenting yourself to a hospital to get hydration intravenously and we have a lot of women that need that on a regular basis so kind of the milder end is just feeling lousy getting a little bit worse you're vomiting fairly regularly and the day is hard to get through but it should get better with time once the placenta is working and the progesterone levels are falling and pregnancy is is more established later on most people find that those symptoms get easier for some women, and this is about between 1% and 3% of women, it's much more severe. Hyperemesis is different. Hyperemesis is extreme and it usually is, um, you know, it can it results in weight loss, uh, ketosis and persistent ketosis, which is not great for fetal development. So women who have hyperemesis often need to take tablets, medications to help reduce the impact of the nausea. Um, that type of the impact of that is huge on women's well-being. Yeah. Um, and the days lost from work are phenomenal as well. But you're not able to care for other kids. You're not able to engage with your partner. You know, the smell of people is offensive. All sorts of things can be really problematic. So if anybody's in that situation, they shouldn't be kind of continuing on with the eating regularly and the ginger and the B6 at home. They should be getting themselves in for a review and just to see what, what can be done to help get them through that, that stage of pregnancy and hopefully uh, with minimal impact on them. We have a cultural notion of eating for two. Is this something we should be doing during pregnancy? It's one of those things that it's it's gotten interpreted. Def- you don't need double the food. You're not going to give birth to a good size 18 year old, which is where you might need to double your calories. I mean, we will call call the, the uh, you know, the Nobel Prize people if we ever have a situation like that. But um, you are you should be eating, paying attention to what you're eating. And, and you know, it, you do you do super absorb key nutrients. So your, your your body accommodates pregnancy by stepping up the value that it gets from food. So a pregnant woman and, and a woman who's not pregnant can eat the same thing and the pregnant woman gets more nutrition from it because you kind of upscale your uptake of key nutrients. So that's a good built-in mechanism. So you don't need double the calories. You're, you are eating for two humans, but one of them is the size of a thimble, you know. So really, you know, it's, it, it's, it's minimal. We might need nothing extra in the first trimester, the start of the second trimester, you'd need under 100 calories extra a day, which is meaningless unless you know what does 100 calories look like in terms of food. Now, you know, just banana for scale, um, a banana is 100 calories, um, roughly. 
medium sized banana, there's bananas and bananas. And then a slice of bread, ordinary slice pan with some toast with some butter on it, not too thickly spread, is ro- approximately 100 calories. You know, so you're talking about a banana sandwich extra if you're going to get 300 calories, which is probably what you'd need in the second trimester. Are there foods you should avoid during pregnancy, like fish or soft cheese? There are some things that should be avoided. And again, what happens is what you want to avoid actually is bacteria that can be problematic in pregnancy and contaminants that can be problematic in pregnancy. But the advice, people don't deliberately go out and and food doesn't come labelled may contain mercury or may contain listeria. So the advice is given in terms of foods to avoid because they're likely to contain certain bacteria um, and Really, the issue is where maybe if a mother comes across, has a, picks up a bacteria that can be problematic in pregnancy for the first time when she's pregnant, and that can be problematic for the baby's development. And there are three really that we'd be concerned about. One is listeria, one is toxoplasma, and one is salmonella. And the reason why you'll hear that you should avoid certain foods is because they have been found to uh, or are more likely to contain or carry those bacteria. The good news is that all of those bacteria are destroyed or the or those organisms rather are destroyed by heat. So cooking something thoroughly destroys uh, the, the chance that it will contain uh, those particular pathogens. So um, salmonella, for instance, 80 over 80 percent of, of uh, uh, chicken and eggs are contaminated with salmonella. But we very rarely see salmonella poisoning and we very rarely see issues of babies harmed by exposure to salmonella in pregnancy. It really is a rarity. And that's because people don't ask for their chicken pink. You know, you, even the worst of Instagrammers don't put up, uh, you know, pictures of r- rare chicken. Everybody and your granny knows that you, you have your chicken thoroughly cooked. Pasteurization destroys all those organisms as well. So that's really helpful. So if something has been pasteurized, it will go uh, a long way to making sure that the, any Con, uh, those bacteria would be destroyed um, but uh, and cooking so if it is brie in a quiche which is again your middle class version of, of, of avoiding uh, uh, listeria that would be fine uh, and if the salmon is cooked it is fine but people are very worried about these things but the likelihood of them happening is very rare the third thing toxoplasma is associated with meat and again if meat is cooked it's going to destroy it it's also associated with cat litter Toxoplasmosis, again, it's not common. Um, and so, but we do recommend that people, if they have a cat or a kitten, um, you know, that they might, uh, maybe their partner might be the one that would change the litter tray um, and that you have your meat cooked through. It doesn't have to be a hockey puck, puck, but things like, you know, minced meat is more likely to contain toxoplasma. Again, it's not common in the food chain in Ireland, but it's something that can occur. Now, I really want to say here, though, that the likelihood of those things is really tiny and the, the, the frequency at which we see those as issues is very, very small, very infrequent. So but people are terrified of them and people are more likely to ask what should they avoid and less likely to ask what they should include. So we've mentioned there about reasons not to eat meat or not to eat meat undercooked, but we rarely see toxoplasmosis. I, I, I can think of uh, two or three occasions in my uh, um, a certain number of years in Hollis Street, which we won't mention. Uh, but what we see every day is anemia. And that's a good reason to include uh, more iron in your diet. So sometimes people are avoiding things for, for the reasons, um, uh, you know, for something that's very unlikely to happen. Like people are afraid to fly. You're, you should be much more, don't be afraid of driving, but you should be much more afraid of driving. You're much more likely to be injured as a pedestrian or in a car. So we rate risk very, very poorly. So we end up being afraid of things that aren't likely to harm us. And we end up not paying attention to the things that are more likely to be a problem. And that happens an awful lot with nutrition. What about the things we normally steer clear of, but then during pregnancy we really crave? 
Well, cravings, I suppose they're, 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 it's, it's, it's not very medical or scientific, I suppose, but we think it's part of that spectrum of, of that morning sickness. Do you know that actually really what you're what you're looking for is just something to eat or drink um, and your baby doesn't know a bar of chocolate from a bar of soap. So your baby isn't instructing you to eat your second bar of chocolate and saying your baby isn't making you crave whatever it is that you're desiring. And we do find it, that some women have very, very um, what they seem to feel is irrational desire for certain things. And if it's not, you know, if it's not, if, you're, if you've got all the rest of your, your nutrients ticked off and you're doing fine and you really feel like eating loads of watermelon and everything else as well, you know, enjoy it. Um, but it's not really related to a nutritional requirement. It's not really related to something that you definitely need. Um, it's more a desire than a necessity. And if it's within the, you know, if it's within the, the construct of you've already got what you need and it's an extra and you like it and you want it, then there's no big problem with that. What would be the best advice for women trying to prevent themselves from getting gestational diabetes? The truth is that the, the um, or the, the fact is that the, the, like the seeds for gestational diabetes, like it's, it's, it's pre-pregnancy, it's, it's, it's an innate tendency towards diabetes full stop that's been unmasked by the pregnancy because your metabolism of glucose changes in pregnancy. Remember we said that the baby travels in size between 25 and 35 weeks, so there's an increased requirement for energy. So a mother's body makes more glucose available in the bloodstream to supply that energy for the baby, regardless of whether she has diabetes or no diabetes. So every mother's blood glucose goes up from 24 weeks. So when babies get more energy than they need, like any of us, if we get more energy than they need, first of all, they grow bigger and then they grow fatter. And the most immediate problem with that from a mother's perspective is that you have a bigger baby to get out. So that can have consequences in terms of how the baby's delivered, um, you know, all of those things. And then there are other consequences for the baby. But if the blood glucose is controlled, we don't see those that the baby's growth is normalized and the mother's well-being is taken care of. So um, First and foremost, the, 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 what, uh, uh, as, well, we call it a diet because diet is just the word for what you eat. But what we recommend that women should be eating when they have gestational diabetes is pretty much what we want everybody to be eating during pregnancy anyway, if we were following all of the guidelines. It's just you now have a really definite, acute reason uh, to do this. So it's trying to bring people back to three regular meals because you want to split your food intake nice and evenly over the course of the day so you have just enough but not too much to increase your blood glucose and um, choosing the types of foods that increase your blood glucose um, in the most rough version possible so foods that increase blood glucose are not just sugars uh, glucose comes in another f- form in starches which is where it's much more it's much rougher and it's bonded together more closely and there's more fiber involved and that's like a really complex piece of jewelry that needs a bit of unpicking so it needs a lot more digesting before you release those glucose beads so it might be if you look at a packet it might be that the sugar content or the carbohydrate content which is going to end up as glucose in your body is the same for two different types of bread but the way that it behaves in your body is different and that's the kind of insight that we like to advise women on because that might not be apparent to you if you're doing your best and you've looked up what you should be eating and you're really our experience is that women end up restricting and restricting and restricting and being obsessed with the numbers and the labels and feeling very, very defeated when the numbers on the blood glucose tester are not reflecting the effort that they're putting in. And then needing insulin is not a reflection of lack of effort. 
that's a reflection of, again, it's a temporary situation and we know that uh, it's more important that the blood glucose is controlled um, so that the, 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 the baby's growth is normalised and if taking insulin for a couple of weeks helps to sort that, it's, it's, it's eating too little is not going to avoid the need for the insulin. Um, take, taking the insulin will keep the blood glucose normalised and mean that your baby's growth is normal and that you can eat enough to get the right type of nutrition that you need and your baby needs. But it's hard going. It's no joke and it's temporary, but it's it, and it's again, this is something we, we really, really, really women who have had gestational diabetes really need to have their blood glucose checked after their baby is born. There's a certain proportion maybe already have the starting, um, you know, have the start of type two diabetes and others within five years might go on to be, um, you know, looking at blood glucose being a little elevated. So that's you can imagine that's people don't want to know that I can totally understand why people would want to avoid the diagnosis but avoiding the diagnosis doesn't change the situation and we'd encourage you to kind of if not if not, if not quite embrace the diagnosis embrace the advice what about if a woman has struggled with disordered eating I'm really glad you asked that question it's a, it's it is it's a key interest of mine personally and again because it arises between the fertility clinic and and in early pregnancy and often pregnancy even women who have an acknowledged eating disorder or a known eating disorder that they've had treatment for pregnancy unmasks that there's an eating disorder voice that people live with and pregnancy can can have that pop out of the box again for people it's the focus is so much again on the weights and the measures and your body is changing and the inevitability of that can be reassuring to some women but it can be absolutely traumatizing to others um we would strongly encourage anybody who has eating issues to seek help and support in advance what we do as dietitians is that we're kind of like just the honest brokers for what does you know what's normal but what is average or what is recommended healthy eating in pregnancy and we can act as a kind of a tour guide for nutrition in pregnancy um, and help people navigate their difficulties with uh, with uh, their eating disorder the one message that I would like anyone who is listening to this, who struggles with food and eating uh, to get is to 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 seek help and advice and support before you get pregnant and throughout your pregnancy. We don't manage treatment. It's not treating an eating disorder, but it's 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 support and handholding and helping you to navigate your pregnancy. Because, as I said, even if it's even if that voice has been put into a, a tightly bound box, it has a way of just uh, escaping uh, during pregnancy when you're going through the normal changes that would be associated with it. Thanks very much Sinead for talking to me today. We hope you enjoyed this expert advised and mum approved podcast. Next episode we'll be talking about hospital life. Check us out on Twitter at Real Mums Podcast or online at realtalkwithrealmums.ie. I'm Louise Makshari and this has been Real Talk with Real Mums.